Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, or good morning, or good night, or good day uh, to whoever hears this. Um, uh, I don't uh, obviously do the right things uh, to develop an audience uh, that I could say good evening because I'm doing this in the evening uh, here in uh, sunny Florida, the show. Um, I don't do them uh, probably uh, as much as I need to do them, uh, and I certainly don't use uh, social media. I'm looking that I just sent out uh, my material on uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Blog Talk Radio itself. Um, so uh, to whoever hears this now or later, uh, hello, I'm Dr. Simon. And I've been doing a show since uh, 2007, sometimes more consistently, consistently, oftentimes inconsistently. I haven't done one in about a month or so. Um, called the stories we live by. And uh, today I want to tell you a story, uh, kind of a complex story that I still really uh, don't have my head around. Um, in fact, I. Maybe should uh, uh, have delayed this particular broadcast until I had more time to digest the material uh, that I'm going to discuss today. Um, I just came back. In fact, I'm trying to get over my jet lag uh, from a trip to Central Europe. Uh, I went to uh, the major cities in Poland. That was uh, Warsaw and Krakow and uh, then to Budapest, which is the big city and the capital city of Hungary, and then to Vienna, which is uh, in the country of Austria, and then finally to Prague, which is in the Czech Republic. And I have problems just saying Czech Republic because I grew up thinking of uh, the Czech Republic uh, as joined with Slovakia, uh, as Czechoslovakia, which recently, uh, some years ago, split into two countries uh, over political and ideological differences, and did so without a war, without violence, without mass murder and uh, rape, and all of the other good things uh, that human beings do to each other, the slaughter that goes on so often when human beings are in conflict, particularly at the tribal level uh, or at the level of nations. And uh, <clears throat> for those of you who know my, uh, my broadcast, <clears throat> there are themes tonight, such as I've just raised, the idea that we're all members of a tribe, uh, <clears throat> sometimes uh, with larger uh, aspects to it, like a nation, sometimes smaller, like uh, sitting and rooting for our baseball team, um, universal uh, tribes that uh, shift nonetheless uh, in terms of uh, religion, uh, but we're part of a tribe, and uh, multiple tribes. And uh, one of the places that uh, <clears throat> I had never visited and knew very, really not a lot about, except, uh, as I'll explain, my own prejudices that come from the fact uh, of the Holocaust and being a Jew, um, was Central Europe. 
not much is taught in school about Central Europe when we study um, history. It's mostly Western Europe and America. Uh, you learn about our, we learn about our country, and then England and France and Italy, Ireland, uh, places uh, that contributed uh, perhaps the largest number of immigrants uh, who ultimately co- came together, cohesed, and whatever tribe they belonged to submerged most of the time those tribal identities into an American identity. Although you just have to look and talk about Jewish Americans, Italian Americans, Polish Americans, German Americans, Irish Americans, and you recognize that um, uh, there are multiple, uh, always historical and multiple roots to the kind of ways in which we end up identifying ourselves uh, in terms of our tribal identity. this trip was, was a revelation for me. I thought I knew what I, you know, what I was going to experience, but really it was so much more and so much more complicated. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the title of the show, which is My Day in Auschwitz and Birkenau, uh, Fun in the Killing Fields of, uh, what did I say, Central Europe or Europe. Um, I don't mean to suggest that going to Auschwitz and Birkenau were funny. And for those of you who are uh, of a younger generation and don't quite know or uh, haven't had fixed in your mind exactly what Auschwitz and Birkenau are, uh, they are two of the three large camps, concentration camps uh, in Poland, um, about 20 miles uh, outside of the second largest city in Poland, Krakow. And for those of us who grew up uh, after the Holocaust, uh, who identify with it, because as I've said many times to many people, even on this show, uh, had my parents uh, met in Russia or Poland uh, or that area of Poland and Russia, that uh, in the morning could have been Poland and the evening could have been Russia, because uh, it switched back and forth historically so many times. Had they met there, and I had been born uh, in 1940 as I was uh, in that place, the likelihood of my sitting here and doing this broadcast would probably be less than zero. It, it, it wouldn't have happened. Um, I would have died a gruesome death, in one of the many camps that had been set up, or I would have been slaughtered uh, by bullet or uh, um, some raging mob uh, in Poland or uh, uh, some other place in Central Europe, Hungary perhaps, um, where uh, racial and and religious prejudice uh, were very deep, particularly uh, hatred against the Jews. So that my, my place in the world... Uh, was only secured uh, existentially and uh, uh, intellectually because my parents, my father, uh, my grandfather on my father's side moved the family first to England. My father was actually born in Manchester. And my grandfather on my mother's side moved the family to the United States uh, early in the 20th century, sometime uh, I'm not sure whether before, during, or after the Russian Revolution, 
uh, when uh, the pogroms, the attacks on the Jews, became so intense uh, that they Jews uh, feared for their lives, and uh, <clears throat> many left and uh, came to America, uh, which at that point welcomed large numbers of immigrants. Uh, and this is not going to be the main theme of my show, uh, but I could throw it in because it is such a personally important thing to me. Uh, the immigrants who ultimately made America uh, the wonderful, great democracy uh, that it is at present, um, and the attack on immigration now, uh, let's shut the doors on all those foreigners, um, is one of the things, one of the aspects, one of many aspects, that makes me terrified for the future of my beautiful country. Uh, and I even you know just this last trip, every trip I take, uh, I've been lucky to enjoy where I've gone. I've gone to Asia. I've gone to um, most of Europe, many parts of Europe. Uh, every time I step off a plane and I'm back on American soil, a rather nice feeling comes over me uh, that I'm an American citizen and living in the United States of America for all of its problems, for all of its difficulties, uh, it is still probably uh, the best place uh, to live for a variety of reasons, some of which I'll discuss tonight. So um, part of this trip uh, was a, you know, a side trip to uh, Auschwitz and Birkenau. Uh, there were hundreds of death camps in Germany, Eastern Europe, uh, during, leading up to and during World War II. The history of this is that the Jews and many other minorities were persecuted in Europe. Uh, it was a tribal and religious persecution. Um, somewhere around the second century, uh, the uh, fact that uh, Jesus Christ, uh, whoever and however he was, uh, whether he's an amalgam of individuals or a specific individuals, we don't really know historically. Uh, what we have is the story of Jesus Christ. But assuming there was a Jesus Christ, he was clearly a rabbi. He was Jewish and never had an intention of uh, changing religions. It was some 200 years later uh, that uh, uh, Saul, who became Paul, uh, began moving Christianity further away from uh, Judaism, from its roots in Judaism, and is in part to establish itself as a dominant and superior religion. And I'm going to talk about that need for all of us at so many levels to be morally superior, to be idealized. Um, at that point, <clears throat> began to the dehumanization and the demonization of the Jews. So that uh, way prior to the, to the Holocaust itself, uh, to the establishment of these death camps, uh, which was so important to Hitler and the Nazi party, uh, and all of those individuals, uh, citizens and military alike, who were carried away uh, by the myth, by the sacred story that the Jews were the devil, uh, that the Jews were cockroaches, that the Jews uh, wanted to control the world, that they ate Christian babies, that they drank their blood, 
that they had blood rituals with with uh, uh, Catholic uh, uh, children at the source of them. Uh, all of these myths had been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and it was therefore ripe for this kind of explosion of hatred and violence uh, that the death camps represent. Now, uh, I don't know exactly how many death camps there were, uh, but there were major death camps that were fed by smaller ones. And one of the remarkable aspects of the history of this is that uh, I might not be here today, uh, and uh, you would all be speaking German, uh, if uh, Hitler hadn't had, with his Nazi party, the main thrust of their efforts to eradicate Jews and other untermenschen, other inferior groups and races, uh, rather than win the war. Uh, to create what he called Lebensraum, living room, uh, and, and um, uh, uh, to dominate wor the world with a thousand-year Reich or empire. Uh, winning the war, clearly, as my understanding now, even more than before the trip, was generated, uh, was second to killing Jews. Most of the Jews, number one, as the Untermenschen, as the dangerous wretches uh, that were infecting and uh, victimizing uh, Germany and its ability to become a, a, um, a main, the main force in world politics. Um, so there were these feeder places. Uh, one of the very large and awful ones was Treblinka. Um, Many of the Jews who went to Treblinka, we don't even know how many because records weren't kept. Auschwitz, as I'll talk about, had very careful records. So we know, and if you visit there, uh, you will never again listen to the nonsense, the dangerous nonsense that the Holocaust never happened, uh, that it can be denied, uh, or if it did happen, it really wasn't as bad uh, as people say now that it was. Um, the original concentration camp, well, there were three units. Uh, two were there. Uh, Auschwitz itself uh, is the number one camp that was built. Uh, it's built of uh, concrete and brick uh, barracks. Um, Birkenau is really Auschwitz II, and it was hastily uh, put together when they took uh, horse stables and refurbish them to be um, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the barracks uh, where the Jews and other unfortunates were placed uh, until they were either worked to death or they were uh, exterminated. Actually, a great many of them uh, never saw the barracks. Uh, they, they, when they got off the train, uh, they were separated into those who could work uh, who ended up in the barracks and did their work in the slave labor camp number three, which was completely dismantled and destroyed uh, as the Russians who liberated Auschwitz and Birkenau uh, came through Poland um, uh, at the end of the war. Uh, uh, and therefore, uh, they tried to eliminate the, 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 the evidence, so to speak, but they couldn't and too much of it was left. 
Uh, so uh, you visit, if you take this trip, first Auschwitz uh, and then Birkenau, but basically they're two units of the same large unit made up of three places. Uh, the, the, the slave labor was done uh, at IG Farben plants, um, uh, making war material, and rarely did anybody live more than two or three months, uh, although some hardy souls and lucky souls and souls who may have given up their souls uh, would have lasted much longer, um, but most died within two or three months of hunger, cold, starvation, and unbelievable brutality that I'm going to spend a little time talking about. Um, anyway, the, the, the camps are situated in rolling countryside, uh, and I was just mocked to myself and to my wife, um, little villages that uh, are picturesque all around the camps, almost up until the border of the camp. Um, how can anybody live there anymore? Uh, and yet, <laughs> that's the funny part and the surreal part of my story. I'm jumping around. You'll have to forgive me. Uh, when we got out of Birkenau and, and uh, uh, went back to our bus, our tour leader was ready with uh, chocolates and with uh, two different kinds of really good Polish vodka. Uh, I used to be a vodka fan, but until I got to Poland, I didn't know what real vodka was. I suppose if I go to Russia, I'll really learn even more about vodka, sort of the national alcoholic drink of those places. Uh, I've never tasted cherry vodka before or honey vodka. They're really quite delicious and very dangerous. All you have to do is to take a couple of sips, and it goes down nice and smooth and easy. Uh, so one glass and you feel great. Two glasses you can't get up. You have to sit down because uh, they are very high proof, most of them, a lot of alcohol in them. Uh, and then we went out for dinner and had a kind of party. Um, so why would I be surprised that uh, two generations, two and a half generations after the horrors have stopped, people are living their lives? Uh, and young people are going to school and making plans for their lives, and, and uh, I shouldn't be surprised. Um, but it is, for me, particularly kind of surreal, kind of unreal, uh, that we next day went on with our tour. The next day we went to, uh, um, uh, into Hungary, to Budapest, which I had very little idea what a magnificently beautiful city. Uh, it's uh, modeled after Paris, at least parts of it. Uh, they have one street, Tree Line Street, uh, that uh, imitates the Champs Elysees, the magnificent street uh, in, in Paris, uh, with fine shops, an opera house that is absolutely gorgeous, a hundred years old opera house with perfect acoustics. Uh, that my wife and I uh, spent several wonderful hours listening to the opera Tosca uh, with fabulous acoustics and wonderful singers and a really world-class orchestra. Uh, life goes on. Uh, but life can't go on in ignorance of uh, Birkenau and Auschwitz and the other horrors that went on because if we do, we will be doomed to repeat them. 
because the tagline of my show is inside of all of us, and I didn't say this first, uh, the writer Primo Levi and other, uh, Elie Wiesel, uh, all came to the same conclusion that inside of all of us is a Nazi, a potential Nazi, and unless we recognize it and know it and learn how to deal with it and learn how to prevent its emergence, not only on an individual level, but on a, on a, on a national level, on a tribal level, uh, we are doomed. And uh, I believe we are doomed. I believe we're already doomed. Uh, but be that as it may, let me go back to some aspects of, of Birkenau and Auschwitz that affected me the most. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, they were opened. Auschwitz itself, with the uh, concrete barracks, uh, opened in 1939, 1940. And the first inmates that went in there were not Jews. There were some Jews, but mostly Poles. Uh, it's important to know that Hitler and the Nazis considered themselves the, the Aryans, the, the great race. Um, I'll use the terminology that uh, will dominate a big piece of this uh, story, uh, the, the idealization of themselves. Um, uh, the Slavs, were lower. So Yugoslavs and, and all of the Slavic people that make up the Polish uh, region, all of Central Europe, most of Central Europe, are uh, people who came into that area uh, as Slavs. And their Untermenschen and their plan was to wipe out the intelligentsia, uh, wipe out uh, a ruling class, and enslave these people, and ultimately drive them to their graves uh, as cheap slave labor, um, and then go on. Plans are there. Anybody can find out about these. They were going to enslave the black Africans uh, and plunder the resources in Africa as the thousand-year Reich uh, was developed. Um, all of this is factual. All of this really has to be understood, and what has to be understood is the relationship of the rest of the world uh, to this kind of, uh, of uh, nightmare. What struck me of these death camps was the artistic, intellectual, um, uh, uh, how do I put this, the energy and intelligence and creativity that went into not only killing people, mass extermination, but to create the greatest amount of humiliation, degradation, moral and physical pain for millions of people before death. And this stuff was tried out on the Poles and others who were enslaved. Um, the uh, Untermenschen, who were, might have been intellectually retarded, homosexuals, uh, anybody who was labeled a communist, um, the appetite for those camps, uh, uh, the, the, the horror was well underway before the masses of Jews, the six million Jews, were processed through uh, these places. And some of the things that struck me that I can't get out of my mind, all of the people who came in were treated as criminals and were 
photographed from one side, the other side, profile and front, even little children. So there's a wall of hundreds and hundreds of pictures in one of the barracks of little children awaiting their deaths, awaiting extermination, who are now photographed as if uh, they're on a police blotter. That struck me. Uh, the torture chambers, any reason that the Nazis had for wanting to punish somebody was really extreme torture. And I want to describe a little of this because it's so important that we understand the kind of debasement, the physical and mental debasement uh, that we're capable of. Notice I don't just say the Germans are capable of, although here it was brought to possibly its highest artistic level. Uh, if creativity can be made and seen as ultimately completely destructive, it was here. There was rooms for starvation. Individuals would be tied down and starved to death slowly over long periods of time. Uh, I have not known much hunger in my life, but I've been hungry enough at times to know uh, that it's incredibly painful and that uh, when I have patients at my, at my uh, nursing homes who decide to starve themselves to death, uh, most often they, they don't go through with it uh, because it's incredibly painful to uh, eat your own body internally uh, through starvation. There was the suffocation rooms where people were tied down and allowed slowly to suffocate to death. I mean... Just the terror of this, the pain uh, that would be done. Uh, the one that, for whatever reason, my own, my own mishigas, my own neurosis, that affected me the most was the standing room. This was a concrete square that was chest high, and four men would be put into this, and the four men would be pressed together in this small space so that they couldn't move, they couldn't turn. They couldn't sit down. They couldn't lie down. And they would come back from their slave labor camp. And we should mention that the slave labor was done four miles away. And in the freezing cold, they were made to walk back and then forth at the end of a 12-hour day with very little food and no toileting. And they were made to stand there. And this would go on until they completely physically collapsed from exhaustion, hunger, uh, and just gave up life. The standing room. Um, other forms of torture that I don't have to go into. So this then was the day I spent uh, in, in this nightmare place. And why would I talk about this? Because what I kept hearing and what I used to say myself is that can't be believed. You don't want to believe it. Could it really have happened? Well, after visiting there and the massive evidence that the uh, Germans left, they were very efficient in leaving the photographs, leaving uh, mounds of hair, human hair, that were uh, made into warm socks for, the, for their troops at the front, uh, sweaters, blankets, uh, human hair throws off water easily, 
so that in cold, wet weather, uh, a human hair sweater or socks is really a, a uh, wonderful uh, uh, piece of clothing uh, to own. Uh, <clears throat> lampshades made out of skin, uh, the teeth, were, the gold teeth were pulled, and billions of dollars of gold bullion went into uh, feeding and supporting <clears throat> the German war machine. So here we are. <clears throat> here we are in the Ishara house, and the, the one, another room that got me were the valises uh, with the names. They were, the, the people would bring their valises. They were told before they got on the train uh, uh, where they were made to stand, and uh, whether cold or heat, these were big cattle cars. Uh, they had to write their names and addresses on these valises, uh, and they left their valises. They went to the death, those who went directly to the death camp, in some ways were really the, the, the more lucky. Uh, they were made to strip. Uh, they were humiliated. The dogs bit at their bodies. There were dogs that bit off the breasts of women, uh, the genitals of men. Uh, they were then brought in to what they believed, what they were told was a shower, and I should back up a second. One of the also powerful moments of this trip, uh, anybody who knows about the Auschwitz knows the famous sign that people walked under as they went to their uh, suffering and their death, Arbeit macht frei, which means work makes you free, because they were told uh, they were being relocated uh, from their homes originally and would work. <clears throat> they would be put to meaningful, honest work. Uh, so they would go under the sign, they would go off the train, off the, uh, train platforms, uh, they would then be stuffed into these showers, and instead of water being turned on, Cyclone B gas uh, would uh, be poured in until they all suffocated to death, uh, and that was a painful death that lasted up to 10 minutes. <clears throat> uh, where the finger marks can still be seen on the walls of people trying to claw their way out, um, and the mothers would hold their babies and, and the old people would... would it, it, again, it has to be described and we can't say it's indescribable and we can't say it can't be believed. So I'm a psychologist. I've set my stage for my analysis of this. How do we explain it? Because it needs explanation. We can't say... As one individual we met, guides that, that took us around and talked about the, the Holocaust in relation to their country, Poland, who had three million Jews and now has maybe a few thousand still left, um, Hungary, which maybe had 400, 500,000 uh, Jews, uh, most of whom were exterminated in Treblinka in very short order in 1944 after the Nazis knew they were going to lose the war and had to finish the job of, of this extermination of these, these uh, cockroaches uh, known as Jews. Um, uh, Austria, after the Anschluss, uh, had 200,000 Jews, uh, many of them educated 50% of the doctors in, in Austria were Jewish. 60% of the lawyers were Jewish. Uh, why, why that existed and the rest were tailors 
and and uh, jewelers and bankers. Why that happened, uh, I'll get to, uh, if not today, maybe another time. Why? Uh, well, like quickly, they they weren't on, they they weren't allowed by the church to own land. Jews could not own land. Uh, when I bought my house in 1968. Uh, in on Long Island, I was the first Jew in my family for I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of years to own a property. It was only 60 by 100, but I owned it. I had the deed to that land. Jews could not own land, so they went into other areas. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, uh, most of those Jews left, although there was about 65,000 Jews, and they were immediately... Uh, put into the camps and exterminated by the Germans. Um, it can't be said, well, we can't understand it. It has to be understood. We have to understand the process. Now, what I kept hearing from the guides and from people I was with on the trip, as they agreed, there are good people and bad people. The bad people did this. The good people did nothing. This is nonsense. There are no good people, and there are no bad people. There are people. For those of you who don't know my shows and don't know my ideas, spend a little time and go back in some of my shows where I discuss the myth of mental illness, that when somebody is depressed, it's because they have an illness called depression. When somebody has given up on life, when somebody, uh, uh, when somebody hallucinates, when somebody can't live in the world psychologically, so they create an alternative one to live in, they have an illness called schizophrenia, and it's that illness that causes them to uh, do these acts or feel the way they, they feel. It's a myth. A label, particularly a moral label, a label that carries value, explains nothing. There are no good people, there are no bad people. There are people who do things that some people judge as bad and other judge as good. And there seems to be no universal, to me, I as I understand it, agreement that any specific act is always bad or always good. Uh, everybody uh, on the trip and all the people I met in these countries now agree that what the Nazis did was bad. But at the time it was done, huge numbers of Poles and Hungarians uh, gleefully, with joy in their hearts apparently, helped uh, in the uh, running of the camps and in the mass extermination. The dirtiest jobs were done uh, by Jews who were called Sunder Commandos, who did it uh, with whatever pains in their soul to keep alive for a period of time. But although, after several months of doing the dirtiest of the jobs, the pulling of the teeth and the shaving of the hair and the burning of the bodies in the crematorium, they themselves were then processed in the exact same way as the, uh, the, the victims that they uh, worked on. Um, the, the, the idea... Uh, that uh, goodness or badness motivates behavior uh, is nonsense. Labels, moral labels like good and bad, uh, or moral labels that uh, pretend to be uh, scientific terms that are medical, like depression, schizophrenia, etc., 
um, don't explain anything. People do things that are judged good or judged bad. It's their behaviors uh, or the thoughts that they have. Uh, uh, in religious terms, it would be sinful uh, or virtuous. Uh, all of these are motivated behaviors. And what we need to understand is how the motive to create Birkenau and Auschwitz comes into existence. How do we process people in such a way as to maximize their humiliation, their debasement, their physical and emotional pain, and then their death uh, uh, and a burial or, uh, or getting rid of a body by burning with gasoline uh, or uh, in ovens uh, <clears throat> with no dignity whatsoever? Nameless masses of people uh, whom nobody knows, who can, nobody can come to a tombstone and put a flower uh, or, or, or say a prayer uh, of, of sorrow, of, of uh, forgiveness. Where does this come from? And we can't say, I don't understand it. It's inexplicable. It's not inexplicable. Now, I don't pretend to be able to explain this. Uh, I really don't. But I have some ideas, and for the next half hour or how much time uh, my lungs will hold out, uh, I want to uh, explore these ideas with you. I've done this before. All human beings, I believe, are moral. Now, what I mean that is not that they do necessarily good things, but one of the existential goals of every human being, because we are social animals and because we not only describe each other, but we judge ourselves and each other, is to be, appear as moral, to be, appear as somebody who matters, who is worth as much as possible, who has value, who can be loved because they are lovable, who is acceptable into social circles. This is profound. It is basic to our fiber of our being psychologically. Um, Freud was wrong when he said that sex was the primary motivation. Uh, I believe that the primary motivation is to avoid death, and not even death, but non-being, non-existence. And while we are alive, from almost the moment uh, we come onto this planet and we start to grow, uh, we want to be seen as morally worthwhile. Well, listen to any conversation if you become aware of it, sitting with your friends. We bathe ourselves in moral righteousness. Others do bad things. Gossip is universal. And in our gossip, we are the judges of those who are not as worthy, as morally righteous as we are. One of the hardest things for any of us uh, to do is to criticize, genuine criticism. And I don't mean self-loathing, the kind of thing that, that uh, uh, extreme kind of, of self-negation that occurs when somebody uh, is in significant psychological distress because they believe somehow they are fatally flawed morally. Um, 
we sit around and we talk and we talk about uh, uh, other people and ourselves in a different light. Our family is morally the right family. Um, I could listen, I've listened, done family therapy for, for almost 45 years now, and the stories I hear about what goes on in a family uh, can turn my hair white and curl my hair, and yet there's an insistence uh, that that family, our family, as each member talks about it, is the best family. So idealization of self exists all the time, everywhere. But it, when it becomes totally impregnable to any kind of criticism, internal or external, it starts to become dangerous. When it gets mixed up with nationalism and, or, and or religion, it becomes extremely dangerous. God is perfect. God is goodness. We are close to God. God loves us. God loves our nation. Our nation is the best. Our political party has done no wrong. I mean, listen to the nonsense of our political parties today, uh, taking no responsibility for any problem in the country, uh, uh, giving it to the other party. They are the bad ones. We are the good ones. Vote for us. We are the righteous. We are the pure. It becomes dangerous when it becomes this kind of impregnable uh, uh, fantasy, this story about perfect virtue. When it really becomes dangerous is when those other individuals, the others, the outsiders, either a group, small group or a large group, are scapegoated. And in the scapegoating, there is a dehumanization. The Jews were not human. Uh, recently, I watched a show on PBS about uh, the Chinese uh, takeover by the Japanese in the 1930s prior to Japan attacking America at Pearl Harbor. Uh, the Japanese considered uh, the Chinese to be, quote, lower than pigs. And instead of shooting most of their victims, millions, uncounted millions, because we don't have statistics about how many died, uh, they would rather crush their heads, men, women, and children, with large stones, because they weren't worthy of warrior's death with a bullet. Right? When we hear stories of ethnic cleansing, those cleansed are inferior. They're morally inferior, they are less than human, and therefore we can do with them what we would do with a fish or what I would do with my, if I have an infestation of ants or bugs and I call the exterminator to put down a medicine that would exterminate them. And by the way, I don't take joy in getting rid of these bugs and certainly would never consider torturing them to death. I feel it is... <laughs> my right and my need to get rid of an infestation of bugs in the house, but not to torture them. A quick death, an effective death. Let them go elsewhere and breed and live and be well, but not in my house. When we look at the torture that goes on in Auschwitz and other places, the total dehumanization 
We realize then that the words that they are less than human are a cover in a way for the fact that we know they're human because we know what their pain would be if it were applied to ourselves. The third element in explaining these camps, or partly explaining, is the victimization. We are the victims of the Jews, say the Germans. I'm, I'm, I'm always amused when I hear the world talk about 28 million people. I think there are now 28 million Jews uh, in the world. Maybe 13 million. There would have been 28 million if 6 million hadn't been uh, uh, destroyed uh, in the Holocaust. Um, The, 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 the victim is seen, the actual victim is seen as victimizing the majority that ultimately strike them down. That provides the motive and the justification, the moral justification for the actions. It's not that the Jews or the gypsies, two million gypsies, were merely cockroaches. But they deserve severe punishment because they victimized good Catholics, good Protestants, good Germans, good Austrians, good Hungarians. They were the victimizers, not the victims. One of the fascinating aspects of my trip was what we tried to hear when our guides and others would explain the Holocaust how much responsibility did they take, not them personally, that they saw their country in that era as being responsible for the, the um, Holocaust, for this, this terrible destruction that took place? Only in Vienna did we hear uh, an interesting story in which after the war, Nazis took over. They became the leaders of Austria, and nobody ever spoke about the Holocaust as if it didn't exist. Germany took full responsibility the minute the war was over and began making reparations. They did not say they were the victims. They recognized they were the victimizers. They did the damage. Poland sees themselves as the victims of the Nazis, and they really at least as I can hear it, uh, only now are beginning to create the kind of memorials that would allow people, particularly young Poles, young citizens, who I want to talk a little about before I hang up, um, to, to understand that, yes, the Poles were victimized by the Nazis, but they were also victimizers of the Jews and the gypsies, particularly the Jews uh, during that period. Right? They, their, their grandparents had blood on their hands. In Hungary, it was kind of hard to get a, a fix on whether Hungarians really take responsibility uh, for their nation's actions during that time. Uh, what happened in, in, in Austria is interesting. Uh, in, in the late 80s, Kurt Waldheim, uh, who was then the ambassador to the United Nations and had been uh, the president in, in uh, Austria, 
was found to be a Nazi, that he had killed people and he ran a death camp. And he denied it. And at that point, there were protests all over the country lifting up the cloud of secrecy uh, and demanding uh, that a full accounting of Austria's role uh, in, in the Holocaust be done. And the, at that point, it was the president or the prime minister of Austria went to Israel and in front of the Knesset said, you, we were not the victims of the Jews. The Jews were our victims. I personally was most comfortable in Vienna because of this. Um, so what we have then is a psychological and a social creation of a myth, of a sacred story that says we are perfect, we are idealized, uh, we can do no wrong, uh, but we're in danger from those others who are less than human and who are monsters and demonize uh, and hurt us. They want to destroy our country. They want to take over the world. They want to eat our babies and drink their blood. Uh, all of these things uh, which become the justification for mass murder. Something else that has to take place, and that is a rigidly hierarchical society, as Germany was, in which obedience to the ideal is more important than individuality. I've talked about this for many years uh, because of my work uh, uh, as a therapist. When children uh, come out of homes uh, and often schools uh, where Obedience is the highest of virtue, the obedience to authority, backed up by severe punishment uh, uh, for disobedience. The good child is the obedient one who believes uh, without doubt, without question. Uh, uh, not only do they not voice their doubts, but they don't even voice them to themselves. Uh, the true totalitarian upbringing uh, where you will be obedient in mind as body to the beliefs of our church, our nation, our political party. No questions asked. So that the individual identity becomes submerged with uh, the group identity. Right? This seems to be another element. Now, other elements that, that uh, unleashed Hitler and unleashed the anti-Semitism and, and uh, anti, uh, uh, the xenophobic uh, uh, feelings in Germany that uh, others were uh, inferior and therefore deserving of whatever the superior Aryans would do to them uh, involved the Treaty of Versailles, uh, the breakdown of the economy after the war, uh, because in part because of the destruction of so much of Germany and especially uh, the terrible uh, uh, emotional and financial pain placed on Germany uh, by the victors of World War I. The Treaty of Versailles really was a disaster uh, in terms of what it unleashed. Terrible inflation where baskets of money couldn't buy a loaf of bread. So, these are the, some of the elements that make mass murder possible. 
not only possible, but probable. One group made up of individuals who submerge their individual creativity to the fatherland, uh, to the Holy Ghost, uh, to whatever uh, 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 leader. In this case, it was the Fuhrer uh, who was treated as if he were a god to the state, uh, the, the political party uh, creating, uh, created by the communists in Russia. And and uh, and and hope and, and try, uh, who tried to then create the same kind of of mass group loyalty uh, and obedience in all of the satellite countries that they took over after World War II. This begins an explanation, at least to me. Uh, if anybody uh, hears the show and they've listened this far, because uh, I am talking for a long time. Um, uh, that uh, let me know what you think. Um, therefore, uh, the potential for each of us to become a participant in horrible acts is there. The moment we refuse to accept our culpability uh, and our possibility that we can hurt others and ourselves, the moment we look down on other people as if they're not human, apply labels to them, uh, that vanquish their, in, their individual uh, uh, rights and their individual creativity and right to live. The moment that we see ourselves as their victim, uh, even if in some ways we are the victim, the moment we can't escape from that kind of psychological trap, given other sociological facts, given the kind of leadership that often emerges at times of stress, the charismatic leader who says, I have all the answers. I'm convinced, I'm more convinced than ever, that the most dangerous people on this planet are politicians who seek great power. I'm doing this all for you. Elect me, listen to me, be obedient to me, because I know best. I am bathed in virtue. This then, to me, begins an explanation. There are many other elements that will have to come in this. I'm kind of tired at this point. It's time for dessert and a cup of tea. Um, so I'm going to end my show. I think I'm a little over an hour at this point, maybe a little under an hour. If anybody has listened to this or any of it and wants to call in, I would stay on the air. I'm at 646-716-7756, 646-716-7756. Or you could send me a message to my site here. There are ways of doing that. <clears throat> uh, that's it. So, uh, by all means, if you can do it, travel. Uh, and uh, go to your favorite places. My favorite city in the world is still Paris. Well, I mean, first is New York City. Um, Paris, high on the list. In Europe, London, a wonderful place to visit. Uh, Budapest, gorgeous city. Vienna, outstanding. Uh, you know what? I should stay a little bit longer. I said to my wife, we finished the trip, I don't want to see another damn castle for a while. Uh, in, in, in Paris, outside of Paris was the summer home 
of the uh, of the uh, French uh, emperors uh, called Versailles, thousands of rooms on huge amount of land. How could that have existed? Basically, the peasants were slaves, uneducated, illiterate slaves. In fact, see, I have to really continue my show for a while now. Um, the same was true in Vienna. The palace, the great palace of uh, the Habsburgs was the Schönbrunn, uh, a little smaller than the Versailles, but modeled on Versailles. Uh, it was their summer palace. It's always amazing how three miles, four miles away, you have a summer palace with uh, 1,400, 1,500 rooms. The only reason the Schönbrunn is smaller than Versailles is because they ran out of money. They didn't have as much money. Uh, in Russia, I had visited St. Petersburg. You have the Peterhof, uh, which was the summer palace, maybe a mile away from the Winter Palace, uh, which was the Hermitage, now one of the great museums in the world. Uh, and these huge, huge palaces could only exist basically on slave labor or next to slave labor. I hope we never have to see another one of these places built again. Um, one of the ways that people show money and power is by building large architectural structures. And we're beginning to see some of that in, in, in our beautiful America, where the multiple rich have multiple homes and, and uh, impress with things, with fine furnishings and, and servants and very expensive automobiles, um, while others uh, really go without and those who go without look up and wish they had all the things that the wealthy have. A couple of side notes here before I stop. I, uh, maybe I should do a whole different show. Maybe I will. Um, I was raised to think the communists were bad. And indeed, uh, the betrayal of communism or of communitism, communitarianism, socialism, uh, by Stalin and those who took over power in Russia um, was ghastly. <clears throat> These were ghastly individuals doing ghastly things, uh, wrapping themselves in a moral purity and idealization uh, while they crushed those uh, who disagreed with them, uh, their own citizens by the millions for being disobedient and bad communists. However, when they took over Central Europe, and all of Central Europe was taken over and liberated by uh, the Russian army, they instituted certain things. One was they built these ugly homes, these big apartment buildings, but everybody had a home with heat and a bathroom. Prior to World War I, World War II, that didn't exist except for the wealthy. Number two, everybody had a job. You may not have liked your job. You may not have had the freedom to change jobs that you would have wished to have. And there could be severe punishment for disobeying the bosses. But you had work. There were very few people who went hungry. And most important from my point of view, they instituted universal education. So the generations of young Hungarians and Poles and Austrians today still have free public education all the way through university. And they are doing very well and very differently than their grandparents. 
they have gone through education. And now, since the fall of communism, 1989, when uh, uh, the wall came down, they're all capitalistic, but not capitalistic like America. They're capitalistic like socialists. 50 to 60% of income goes to taxes. I don't know how much corruption there is. I have no doubt where there are politicians and where there's politics, uh, there's going to be corruption. However, um, they don't want to give up their free schools, their free medical care. They don't want to give up these things. Uh, they accept this as a part of life. And the hold the church had over their lives is broken. Large numbers of Europeans, and I know this is true in Western Europe, but in Eastern Europe as well, uh, are not very religious. Um, religion was outlawed, and the grip of religion uh, loosened. And once people become well-educated, they can't believe their religion on a literal way. They can be personally religious, they can be spiritual, but the idea the concrete idea that the world was created in seven days or whatever other myths, and there are hundreds of them about the creation of the world, that that can be taken literally goes. So as I looked at young Poles uh, who are attending the first night I was there, a rock concert in the University of Warsaw, a huge, beautiful campus, um, they look like Americans, all on their phones, uh, all enjoying uh, their, their, their city and their nightlife. The same was true of the young people I saw uh, flooding the squares in, in Budapest and in Vienna and in, especially in Prague. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk to many of these individuals, but I doubt seriously they are uh, illiterate and their heads filled with uncritical myths about the Jews or anybody else being unto-mention. Yes, there is a right wing in all of these places that preys on the old myths of Jewish uh, uh, anti-Semitism and inferiority of other people. Uh, yes, there is a danger that it could all come back, just as there's a danger, I believe, and I've said so many times, that America uh, can fall under the spell of uh, the right wing that's developing here, or even the left wing. Uh, well, that doesn't have much political power at present. Uh, so so uh, it's always there. It's always there. But I had a strong sense, my wife agrees and others, uh, that the young in these places uh, are better educated, uh, happier. Uh, they can go to Hard Rock Cafe now. They can eat in McDonald's. Um, I appreciate these places, not because I think the food is necessarily good, uh, but because they're places uh, that represent uh, uh, an ability to be an individual. So, um, came back with my head struggling to get around all of these themes, uh, but I no longer uh, uh, go let go unchallenged. Uh, the reason it happened in Germany, the reason it happened is that there were good people and bad people. Uh, that's not an explanation. Uh, that's a cliche. And uh, we need better explanation and a better understanding and a better realization of what kind of horrors, what kind of, of, of 
awful, monstrous evil. Moral terms, not descriptive terms, we can unleash on each other if we're not fully aware of the potential in all of us to give up our identity to a mass movement that idealizes itself, uh, demonizes and dehumanizes other individuals, sees itself as the victim as it hurts and destroys others, uh, and therefore justifies all of its actions as morally correct. I'm, I'm going to sign off now. Just this week, a young man shot, he stabbed to death his three roommates and went out with his gun, uh, uh, with guns, and shot six or seven innocent people to death and 13 others he wounded, and then left this tape uh, that he was the victim of he was rejected, and therefore he was the victim, and taking revenge was doing a noble thing. Uh, and then one of the, uh, this guy who's known as the Joe, Joe the Plumber uh, Tea Party uh, announced that uh, uh, there is, he, he feels sorry for the victims' families uh, and the victims, but uh, the death of those children is trumped by his right as an American to bear arms. His ideal. Okay, folks, I think I've done enough. Um, I feel good about this show. And uh, if I haven't clarified anything for anybody else, I've done it for myself. And so I'm going to say good night. Good luck. I will hold on for 30 seconds. Uh, shutting my mouth to see if anybody is there and wants to call, because I would love that. That would make my evening. 646-716-7756. Okay. End the episode. End the episode. <laughs>